turn to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18. I've noticed that uh, when I was growing up, we males have this pressure to compete so that people think we're cool. I remember when I used to go play sports, we'd always, when we were warming up, if we didn't know each other, we'd always be showing off before they picked the teams. And, and that I don't know if women never feel this way, never been one. But uh, I have a sneaky suspicion you're just as bad as we are. Um, you know, if you ever, you know, we're coming to this political season. One time I was watching at the end of when they were giving all the returns, and they took us from one party to another of the guy that won. And I noticed when they, when the guy came to the podium, he was beaming with a smile so big, if it got any bigger, it would crack his face. What was he happy about? Was he happy about, now I'll save America? I don't think so. You say, well, which ones had these big smiles? Both parties, whoever, whoever won, were happy because everybody liked us. We won. I doubt if any politician is very happy when they finally do something right. Oh, did it right. That way I won't get unelected, but we often are very, very, very conscious about if we're greater than someone else, okay? You say, well, thank God you ministers are free of that. Uh, not so. How big is your church? On down the line. Um I shared with the earlier service that one of my friends called me up and he's running this really neat ministry. It's um, He's an ex-hockey player. He's kind of a rough and tough guy that doesn't know how to be you know, ministerial. He's just himself. And he's a fun guy to watch and he's doing this really good ministry. His church is about probably a third the size of this, this church. And he went to a conference at um, Rick Warren's church because they offered this for pastors and he called me up and he said, can I talk some things through with you? Um, so we met at um, Marie Callender's in Azusa. And we were sitting there and he started telling me about the conference. He told me about how nice they were to him and how servant-oriented their staff is. They gave him these great materials and every staff person did a great job. And the, the, the content was wonderful and he was just really appreciative. And then he says, we all got together. He says, five or six of us for lunch. And we all admitted that we were all losers because their churches were a hundred or so, and Rick Warren's is thirty thousand. And so you feel like, and you think, and I was thinking, this is so different than where my college students are, because most of them don't like big churches. One told me I refuse to go to a church where the pastor doesn't know my name. And one of them says, I don't want to go be part of a big number. I want to go someplace where I'm known and where I'm loved. And yet we pastors only like ourselves if we're the greatest. And, and I think all of us are that way. Um, you would be happy to know, wouldn't you, that 
when God called the holy apostles of God in Matthew 18, they were free of that stupid way of thinking, right? So let's read Matthew 18, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, We're only happy if others are helped, and we don't care how important we are. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, these are new glasses. What do they ask Jesus? Who's the greatest? You say, well, these, man, this is God in the flesh. He selected these people. You would think he wouldn't have selected people with such inferior spiritual attitudes. So look at verse 2. Matthew's going to show us how Jesus tried to educate idiots. Here we go. The first thing Jesus does is he calls what? A little child to him. And he set him in the midst of them. Now, why does he call a child? And what's that have to do with greatness? By the way, Mark 9, verse 36, we won't turn to that, but just let me quote it to you. Mark also records a story like this. So does Luke. Actually, this actually came up several times in the apostles' time with Jesus. They seem to be consumed with who's going to be the greatest. And Mark gives us one little addition. I love the stories of Mark when they're the same as Matthew or Luke. Often Mark adds one little actual added detail because Mark is usually Peter's memoirs. It's probably the most first-hand account, first-hand account. But in Mark it says, he brought the child before him, and Mark adds this, he took the child in his arms. How do you think that child felt? It doesn't happen very often, and it's been rare. I've learned not to pray for it anymore. But there are a few times in my life where I feel he has held me in his arms. And when Christ holds you in his arms, you don't care about anything else. That's it. You don't care about money. You don't care about anything. You don't care about who great, who's great, who's mate, who's jade. You don't care. You're in his arms. That's all you need. And you say, well, well, if you were really spiritual, you would always be feeling that. Uh, I don't think so. That feeling is great, but then it's taken. And I've learned not to pray for it. If it comes, it comes. But it, there's many times I've gone for years and not sensed that, that intimacy. And then I've wondered at first when I was a younger Christian if I'm sinning, that I began to slowly realize he's teaching And so Jesus is now going to teach them how do you handle it, whether you feel it or not. How do you really understand what greatness is? And how can you become healthy? And you say, why do you use the word healthy? Um, Last uh, Friday night, I had a guest. Um, My wife was out of town. She's abandoned her husband because there's a new grandbaby in Fresno. And when it was born, she says, you now have half a wife. 
and uh, so she spent five days in Fresno, and she'd call and says, "Oh, it turned over, and did this, and then it did this, and it pulled its knees up, and then I got a blow-by-blow, you know, fascinating account of my new granddaughter." Uh, but while she was gone, this guy emails me and he says, "Bruce, I met you on the trip this summer." He says, "I'm in L.A. I've gone to this conference. I would love to just spend time with you." And I said, "Well, come to dinner." My daughter's home. She'll cook. She's a good cook. So he did. He came to dinner. But that, that was Friday night. Friday afternoon, I could feel the Holy Spirit saying, Bruce, ask me to teach you this weekend. So I did. And that night, we talked from about 8 in the evening till 1 in the morning. Um, talked about a lot of things. One of the things we talked about was something he kind of learned in the conference and something he'd been thinking a lot about is he says, we have evidence now that people who are afraid can't learn. It actually shuts down their capacity to take in. And then he started talking about, he says, you know, often kids in very, very poor homes are afraid what's going to happen when they get home if, you know, if it's unsafe. Sometimes they're afraid um, they're going to get beat up on the way home or they're afraid they're not going to have a meal. And he says, those kids are not stupid. They're just afraid. And then there's a lot of my students at the university who unconsciously are afraid that they're really loved by their parents. And it blocks their capacity to learn. Then he shared with what happened to him. He came from Korea. He came to La Crescenta went to school, and all knew culture, couldn't speak English very well, afraid, you know, he wasn't, he didn't know anybody, and he was afraid he wasn't accepted, and, and he just, you know, it just tightened him down. You say, well, what kind of student is he? He's brilliant. You know, it's fascinating listening. He's in the finance world now, and he's, he's done extremely well. But that fear held him back. And so, how does that stop you, and how does that hold you back? Well, I thought, that's interesting. I need to think about this, because I wonder how many of my students are not going to do well this semester, because underneath it is fear. So Jesus took that child and held him where? His arms, and he says, this is the beginning of how to become great. So watch what he does with that now. Verse 3, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Can I translate that for you? This word converted, most scholars think behind the word Jesus used that day in Aramaic was the word to turn. In Hebrew, it's the word shuv. So Jesus is saying this to the holy apostles of God. Oh, you want to know who's going to become great? My first thing to say to you is you need to worry about whether you're going to even be in the kingdom of God. You need to turn, change your attitude about what is great. It must change. And you say, what do you mean kingdom of God? What does he mean by that? Well, I think a simple way to understand this is you're in the kingdom of God 
when God is your king. That makes sense? That's kind of simple, huh? So, are you in the reign of God? Are you in the kingdom of God? Well, is Jesus king? Or are you king? And he says, you are not in the kingdom of God unless you've been converted. And then, of course, and he says, this is an area you need to convert. You need to change. And then he goes on and starts to explain what that means. He says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you want to be great? You have to humble yourself. And the world says you want to be great, you have to push everybody else down. In my world, the academic world, we have some really stupid ways of doing this. We do name dropping. Oh, as Kierkegaard says, or yes, as Ike wrote, uh, if you'll notice an Ike wrote in volume two mentions, you know, and we always are dropping these names so that people are really impressed with us because the best way to become great is to let the other people feel they're dumber than you. Right? And on, remember when grammar school, the guys who were great were the guys who hurt the littler kids. Then they felt good about themselves. They were better than someone. What often happens in American schools is kids get pushed around, and when they get a little bit bigger, then they become the pusher-arounders. And then they feel great. And Jesus says, I see the world differently. Okay? So he says, the first thing you need to do is become like a child and be humble. Now, what does he mean by that? And now he begins to give specifics to that. He says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. You say, well, no, no, no. You accept Jesus Christ as personal Savior by raising your hand and saying some words. He's not saying that, is he? Um, let me share with you what I used to share with my when I used to do youth work, um, I wasn't the best, most talented youth director they had. So they put me in all the programs that didn't, weren't going well. Because they thought, if Bruce fails, those programs are failing anyway. No loss. So they put the loser guy with the loser programs. So I was way out in the county. And nobody went to church out there. All the church youth groups were non-existent. And all these kids are just a bunch of wild pagan bonacci's, you know. And uh, slowly but surely, and certainly not because of my expertise, they became Christians. In fact, one day my, my sidekick, my uh, assistant, she says, you know, someday you need to learn to, how to learn so, to lead someone to Christ. I says, well, okay. But they became Christians despite me. And so I began to teach them the gospel. And one day I pulled them aside and I says, now, let me warn you. Don't be nice to the little ones. Don't be nice to the people who don't, aren't handsome or aren't pretty or aren't good athletes or aren't cool. Don't do that because it's dangerous. Because if you start doing that, you start doing things that God does and he's, you're going to start acting like him and God's going to suck you right into his kingdom. So be careful. Be careful. Just be a bully and be a jerk. It's safer. Because then God will get his clutches into you. And they would look at me like, boy, you're weird. Um, last May, I went to um, San Fernando and I spoke for a friend. He says, my mentor is dying of cancer. 
he's going to speak the last time he's going to speak on planet Earth. And he has passed away, passed away just a few weeks after he spoke that night. And he said um, he can't do the whole thing. So you need to come afterwards and then do this for me to end the service. I says, whatever you want, because I really like this guy. So I'll do it. So I show up there. The guy gets to stand up to speak. Um, they bring a chair for him, or he wouldn't make it through the 30 minutes. And then they bring a mic to him. And his name is Big D. I don't know if any of you have heard about him. It's Donald Garcia. He has personally, he, well, before he passed away, when he was, before he became a Christian, he had personally murdered 12, 12 people. And then been responsible for another dozen contract hits. This was not a nice man. In fact, he told some stories about when he was in prison. Um, you know, there, these, he was in the wrong group, and these guys were going to jump him. So he was thinking out how he would kill this one and then seriously kill that one before they knifed him. This was a really tough man. This was about as tough a guy in the prison. I think he's been in six of the most uh, famous prisons in all of California. He spent half of his adult life, by the time he was 47, in incarceration. And he became a Christian. He became this loving, sweet man who was mentoring my friend. And he has probably saved the lives of two to three to four thousand young people in this area because when there were gang wars for the last 25 years, they would call Donald. And when Donald showed up, for some reason they would listen to him. They wouldn't listen to the cops, but they listened to Donald. And he stopped more gang wars just because of, and he's led more people to Christ and helped them because he's one with them. Okay? But Donald, okay, Donald became a Christian because it, he, I, I listened to the story and then I realized how close his story was to the Bible story. He started to become a Christian because of a small one year old little boy who he knew. If he died, that boy would just become part of the system and become like him. And that was the beginning motivation of his conversion. He received this child. And then I later found out that child wasn't even biologically his. But something hit him and he reached out to this child. And that began, plus other things. Then he learned one day he just started to pray out of nowhere in prison. And then eventually God met him. But I thought, how interesting, he reached out to a child, a little one. And by reaching out and helping that child, who was he reaching out and helping and accepting? God. Okay. You say, what do you mean by little one? Well, I did my homework on this and I looked up the best evangelical scholars. And you're going to see this word come up again, child, little one. And I looked it up, and the word little one and child means, you know, small human. Okay? But the evangelicals say it also means young believer. So then I looked up the liberal commentaries. They said it means small human, and it means new believer. So then I looked up the Catholic commentaries. I own them all. You ought to see my 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 house. It's just a big, huge bookshelf. Uh, then I looked up all the Catholic commentaries, and guess what they said it meant? Small human, young believer. 
Then I looked up, you know, everybody and their mother's uncle. I looked them all up. I own all that stuff. And they all said the same thing. So, whoever receives a little one, receives me. And then I remember when I was eight years old, I was the family hellion and I had converted. And I went to Sunday school. And my Sunday school teacher um, was so patient and kind with me. He later didn't teach my class because he fell off the wagon and went back into alcohol. But I always realized when I read this verse, he received me, a little wild Bonacci convert. And I thought, I bet God brings him home because he was reaching out to God when he reached out to me. Does that make sense? You want to become great. The first thing you do is you receive the little ones. The great ones right now among us are right over here. Because who are they receiving? It's a lot of work to work in the nursery. Right? Because often that's you, can't, you can get workers to do a lot of things, but you can't get them to work in the nursery. <laughs> you see, well, wait a minute, what's religious about that? Nothing. But there's a lot of godliness about that. And then little one means anybody who's not on the top. Do you know what I mean? It's the, it's the vulnerable ones. So when I was a young man, I was raised meticulously by my parents to show respect to elders. In fact, I didn't, so I got a lot of spankings. So I finally, you know, learned. And I went to college. I was a freshman. And I got on the baseball team. And I was so excited because I looked down on our, our roster. And I thought, oh, my God, we're playing UCLA. The most famous coach, coaches in California are at three schools, UCLA, USC, and Cal Poly Pomona. They were the super baseball powers of Californian college ball. And they were the super coaches every year. They just didn't win one year. They won every year. And that year, there was four top teams that went to the NC2 playoffs. And guess what three of the four were? Those three schools plus Stanford. So I was so excited when we went out to Cal Poly Pomona. And I, you know, we traveled. I was from this dinky little small Mickey Mouse Christian school. And so we were traveling with sack lunches, you know. And uh, we got our sack lunch. And got. And I was in the... Um, the locker room of this huge gym that Cal Poly has, and I was putting my cleats on, and and this old man wanders by, and I thought, oh, it's the janitor, and he says, hey, kid, you want an orange? And I thought, nah. Then my, you know, that's rude. I thought, well, it's a janitor. He's just trying to be, I don't, what's he, I don't know, okay. And then so I said, yes, sir, I would like an orange, and he gave it to me. I says, thank you very much, and he says, well, it's all right, son. So I thought, oh, that's okay. I was nice to the janitor. Cool for Bruce, you know. Then I got my cleats on, went out, and we started working out. And then we had about 18, 19 people on our team. We're a small Mickey Mouse, small school. They had 60. All 60 of theirs would have started on our team. This is one of the finest baseball programs, college level, in the United States. So I'm sitting there. And I glance over there, and all of a sudden, I see the coach. Guess who the coach was? It was that old man, <laughs> the janitor. That was that famous coach. I was thinking, oh, my God. I was so glad I was nice to him. 
I think when we get to heaven, we're going to realize the most important people we have ever received and accepted and have been kind to are the little ones. Because the moment you do that, you're like God. That's his character. That's why we worship him and we adore him. Because he accepted us. And then he wants us to accept others. And then we would be surprised what's going to happen. He's probably not going to come and say, Bruce, you did a good job. You spoke at Rawls. Huge mega church. He doesn't probably care at all. He's probably going to say, which one of your students that was a loser and was always getting asked did you reach out to and accept? Does that make sense? That's just how he thinks. I have to convert and go back. And that just reaching out to the littlest ones, which means I can become great no matter what my skills or what my abilities. Greatness is in the grasp of every one of us, every one of us in this room. But it's not easy to do, is it? But anyway, here we go. He says, if you receive me, receive them, you receive me. And then whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. And I looked that up and I realized Jesus was talking to Jewish men. And they were what type of men occupation? A lot of them were. Fishermen. And you say, what do you mean thrown to the depths of the sea? Well, here's what they were hearing. A millstone, by the way, this particular Greek word, refers to the millstone used of the villagers to crush the village's grain. There's another word for the small one that goes in your home. But this Greek word means the one that they crush the village's grain. That's a 900-pound stone, usually. So heavy, they put a hole in it, in a pole, and then they move it in a circle and pull it with an animal. And so Jesus is saying, you hurt a little one, and it would be better for you to go scuba diving with a 900-pound weight. Those of you who have scuba dived know you don't come back up if you've got 900 pounds on you. And then you are drowned in the depths of the sea. In Hebrew, the word for sea is the word for death as well. So Jesus was threatening them. By the way, Jews were deathly afraid of drowning. They didn't want to suffocate to death. It's a death they never wanted. And so Jesus was saying, you hurt a little one, and you've just ticked off the greatest power on earth. Would you like an Old Testament example of that? Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. By the way, this concept is in the Old Testament, but it's only there a thousand times. You say, really? Yeah. I started looking them up one time and I thought, oh my gosh, it's, you know. And then I realized, okay, every time you look up the word poor, that's hundreds of times in the scriptures. And then every time you look up the word widow, every time you look up the word orphan, those are code words for people who are, you know, who are little ones, they're vulnerable. It's amazing how the Bible presents the God of the universe in his attitude towards all the people we often discard. But let me read this. Chapter 23, verse 10. He says, Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless. In the ancient world, if you were a young child and your dad died, and you had a little plot of land, 
oftentimes then they would slowly start moving the land marker. And if you complained, they'd say, well, take me to court. But see, a child couldn't take you to court. Children were not allowed in court. So you could slowly cheat the fatherless. And the proverb says, do not move the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty. Who's he referring to? Yahweh. And he will plead their cause against you. Or Exodus 22.22, do not hurt a widow or an orphan, because if they cry to me, I will make your children widows and your spouse, or your children orphans and your spouse a widow. So I used to tell my college students, remember, if you're a believer and you know how to pray, you're the most dangerous person in L.A. Who hurts you has just set off, especially if you're vulnerable and you're in a weak position. This is the God of the universe. This is the God who came in the flesh in the form of Jesus. And he says, you want to become great in the kingdom of God, you have to be like me. I am especially concerned about the vulnerable. So if you want to be my friend, you have to do that. You know, I have four children, now one grandchild. Um, you say, how much do you like your kids? I really like my kids. You say, how do you become your friend? Be good to my kids. Now, if you hurt one of my children, could you think you can be my friend? Nope. Why not? So who are the special friends of God on this planet? The little ones. You hurt them? It doesn't matter how much you go to church. It doesn't matter how much Bible you have. It doesn't matter whether you preach or cut CDs or whatever you do, you know, if you're a great musician. It doesn't matter at all. All that matters is how you treat people, and especially the little ones. He goes on, go back to Matthew there, and he says, don't cause these little ones to hurt. And he says, woe to the world because of the offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. In other words, once a person becomes a Christian, they're vulnerable. And the devil's going to try to come after them, trip them up. He says, that is always going to happen. But he says, don't let that trip up be you. I remember one time a student came to me and he saw me. He had graduated about 10 years before. And he goes, hey, Dr. V, how are you? That's, by the way, everybody calls me. They can't pronounce my last name either. And uh, he says, how are you? And I said, fine. And he came up and he gave me a hug. And he says, um, well, he says, I have one criticism of your uh, your training. I said, what's that? He says, you were way too nice to us. You and all your peers treated us so well. We were not ready for the church. He says, I have been brutalized and mistreated constantly since I've been in ministry. He says, we didn't realize how hard it was going to be because we thought everybody would be like you and Mark Pritchard and, you know, Leslie Fife. We thought, we'd all, we thought they'd all be like you guys. You guys loved us. And I sat there and I thought, I'm sorry. But also, he was still a caring, healthy man. And so, however the world's going to treat the young believers in this church, may the offense not come from us. 
They're going to get beat up well enough in the world. But they always need an anchor. And that anchor should be us. They should all be able to go back and say, okay, I've been mistreated, but I know how to do it right. And when I got some of the bosses I've had to work for, um, I sure appreciate the first two I had because they showed me how to do it right. And that, then I got real mad the first time I had a boss that just abused me. And then I was getting really mad. Then finally the Holy Spirit says, hey, dum-dum, I showed you the right way to do it. Everybody has bad bosses, so quit crying, you big baby. And I thought, okay. <laughs> then he says, now remember, you don't like how you're being treated. Never Make sure when you're in authority, you don't do this. So don't let the offenses, that's what Jesus is saying. Greatness is those people who are very, very concerned about those where they have authority over them. So last November, I spoke in uh, uh, Los Alamitos. It's a little, it's a Presbyterian church. And they have, a, it's a very formal Presbyterian church. You know, the, all the pastors wear robes. And, but they have a contemporary service, and my, one of my students is responsible for it. Former student. So he called me up. He says, Dr. B, we need a speaker. Can you come? I said, sure. So I, I did the service. And then I was about to leave. And this small man walks up to me. And I kept looking at him. And he didn't have a robe on. But then it dawned on me, this is the, the senior pastor of this very rich and powerful Presbyterian church. And he humbly thanked me for serving in his church, which really kind of impressed me. And so I looked at him and I said, well, I want to thank you. He says, for what? I says, you now have the second of my students that have worked for you. And the best they've been ever treated in ministry is by you in your church. And I want to thank you because you have blessed my students. And he just stared at me like, huh? And I thought, you don't realize how rare you are, sir. How well you treated people. Because you're not to hurt the little ones. And they should never be hurt in church. He goes on and he says, but if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Because sometimes we do make mistakes. You say, what do you mean cut it off? One of the things we value the most is our reputation, isn't it? What if you make a mistake and hurt a little one? What should you, what should you do? What if you went up to him and said, I was wrong. Forgive me. And yet you're an authority. What are you cutting off? Your image of being perfect. But cut it off. Throw it from you. Because the most important thing, everything has to go. But don't let a little one get hurt. And I know lots of really good youth directors. One of them, one time, sat down and meticulously cleaned out certain sins in his life because he was deathly afraid some student would see it and it get hurt. And I've had friends, I had one friend who stopped um, using the Internet because he didn't want to be tempted by Internet porn. You say, what's wrong with the Internet? Well, it's like your right hand. It's good. But if it causes you to sin... So he stopped it. I thought, that's pretty radical. You need, kind of need the Internet. You've got to do all this stuff. But that's what he did. And then you say, what about yourself? Well, I know one time I was, when I was really young, I was uh, completely aware that the opposite sex was kind of cool. But where I was going to college, there was a group of, you know, 
people my age who were extremely poor. You say, how do you know they were poor? They were hardly dressed at all. They were wearing these bikini bathing suits. So I figured they must be really, really poor. So I never went to the beach. I stopped going because all those poor girls were there. You say, what's wrong with the beach? God made the beach. You idiot. Yeah. <laughs> but Bruce wasn't thinking of the beach when he was at the beach. Okay. You say, well, you weak Christian, you. Okay, <laughs> I am. I believe that. So no more beach. You say, well, you're an idiot. Okay. But he says, cut it out. And so that was the best thing for me to do. Radically, radically, radically take anything out of your life that could hurt a little one. Do you see what he's saying? And when you do that, you become great. My Assyrian uh, friend, thats he's a friend of my friend. In fact, you know Latimer. It's one of Latimer's friends that stopped his internet conviction thing. And I've thought, and I've met this guy and I was thinking, I respect you. What a great guy he is. Because he didn't want to sin. He never, because he had influence with the youth, this other guy did. Um, he goes on and he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into the hellfire. So take heed that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. You say, what do you mean by that? What's he saying? Well, you guys are all aware that if something's, someone cheats you, let's say, um, I was at Pasadena Calvary Chapel and this guy came up to me and he says, I live in Highland Park. He says, and one day the um, they decided to triple our electric bill. And he says, I'm not a rich man. I couldn't afford it. And the, the company found a way to do it. They tripled all their, their bills. And most of these people are not rich, so they're powerless. So this guy called his assemblyman, who's now our mayor in Los Angeles, and he says, our power bills have been tripled. And I said, he took the call? He says, yeah, he did. A week later, our bills were taken back to their original size. And I thought, you got to a guy with power? How'd you get to a guy with power that actually could stop some big mega corporation from doing that. He did. If you needed to talk to the governor of California, could you get an audience? Could you get to Governor Brown? Uh-uh. It's almost impossible. You'd get through layer after layer after layer, and then they'd get you some form letter. You know, Can you get to these big mega pastors and ask for prayer? Huh? They would send you to the prayer ministry. You heard a little one, and there are these magnificent, huge, angelic beings who are constantly in access. And the Hebrew way of saying that is to the face. They have access to the Lord of glory. You hurt one of them, and God immediately knows. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't despise these little ones. They are the apple of his eye. Don't despise children that come to Sunday school. Don't despise the new believer. They are the apple of his eye. They are the one he really cares about. And don't hurt them. 
Then he goes on and he builds on this. For what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountain to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you that he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that do not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And you know, when you go after the lost ones, no one, in the, usually in the Christian world, applauds you. You don't advance your career praying constantly for that disagreeable you know, neighbor of yours. But I know Christians who every moment they wake up, they see someone in their family and they're praying for them because they're seeking for them. They're hoping they can bring that person to Christ. The great ones in the kingdom of God are the ones who are hungry for the salvation of those who have made mistakes. And let me be honest with you. When I meet a mistake maker, my first response is, Ah, what a jerk. And what's the Lord saying to me? Go get him. You say, how's that work? Well, when I do it, it works great. My funnest time last year was I met with a guy who got a DUI. He was going to get kicked out of the school, and they called me up, and they said, uh, this kid's got a DUI, and we're going to kick him out of the university. We're a Christian school. But we will let him stay if he agrees to meet with a Christian professor once a week. And he gave us your name. Are you willing to do it? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. I like the kid. thought he was cool. So we met. This is the funnest thing I had all, all semester. He, I learned a ton from this kid. And you say, so you got this great relationship, this blessing, because you reached out to a kid who made a mistake. Yeah, and I think I think unconsciously in my heart I knew this is what pleases the master. Because, you know, it's a lot of fun, too, to meet with the kids that don't make mistakes, that want to be missionaries or want to be pastors. And those are fun kids to work with. But sometimes I think God is saying you have to have sensitivity towards those who don't do well. And I shared in last service, I, I spoke here about a year or so ago, and towards the third service I saw two girls in the back that were definitely not dressed like Christians, do you know what I mean? And they had all the earrings and the noses and all the stuff. You know, they, I think they would never made it to a metal detector. Um, and I looked back there and I thought, oh, these kids don't go to church. This is cool. They're in church. This is wonderful. And I thought, as soon as the service is good, I'm going to go over there and say hi and thank them for coming. You know, and I tried to get there and people tried to say, you know, hi. And they, they, I met people. And then I, the only way I could have got them was knock this older lady down and break her hip. And so I thought, well, probably that's probably not Jesus like. So I, I couldn't get there. And I thought so frustrated. I thought someone needs to greet these gals because they're new. They've never been to church. And, and I couldn't get there. And I couldn't get there. So I was super, and finally, I got to that pole and they were still there. And guess who was talking to him? Manny. And it's Manny-like. It wasn't like, I'm really cool and you guys want to kiss my ring. I'm the pastor. You know, let me get my robe on. You know, um, it was just Manny. He was just sitting there really shy, Manny. You know, and, and, you could, and I, kept, I kept watching their eyes. And they were totally relaxing. And all the fear of being in a church setting was, was slipping away. And I thought, that's who we should be. That's how we become great. We can all do that. You don't have to have talent or abilities or gifts, but you have that access. That's stage one on greatness. 
You want two? I won't do three because it'll just kill you. But let me do two. Verse 15, real quickly. Moreover, if your brother sins against who? You. How many of you have been hurt by a Christian? And what they did was wrong. Let me raise your hand. Really wrong. I mean, they sinned against you. Come on, let me see your hand. Okay. You say, that's never happened to you, Dr. B. Oh, yeah, right. Then the Pope's not a Catholic. So what do you do with idiots that go to church? You say, have you never, ever been heard at that wonderful Christian university that you go to? Of course I have. So how am I to handle that? Well, watch what he says. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. How easy is that? No, it's a lot easier to gossip about them. Right? It's a lot more fun, too. But to go eyeball to eyeball and say, you know, you really hurt me when you did this. How many Christians do that? And sometimes when you confront those people that have hurt you, they'll hurt you more. It's a risk. One time I thought I was really mistreated by my baseball coach when I was in high school. So, and everybody was afraid of him. So I went up to him and I said, you know, when you do this, you just yank our, our confidence out of our, our very souls. Guess what he did? He made sure I never played again. I was the starting first baseman. Never started again. What was he teaching me? No critique. Right? What is Jesus saying? Tell him. Person to person. So I became a teacher, university, and I'm kind of from a rough background. Um, I worked in the summer all my young adult life from 13 on loading trucks in a produce loading dock where they loaded 40-footers going all over the United States. And that's not the Sunday school breeding ground of America. It's a really rough, tough world. you know. And, and most of them don't know more than 150 words in English, and then they know about 150 words of cuss words. They know no adjectives. All their adjectives are cuss words. And so it's a pretty, um, it's a, you know, and some of that has affected me. And so sometimes when I was first teaching in my early days, I would get so excited about a truth, I would use one of those words. And I'd say, yeah, this is, <laughs> it would come. And so this guy makes an appointment with me. He says, you know, I love your lectures. He says, but when you get excited, you cuss. He says, so we've gotten together and we've decided that you just are so excited, you just want to jolt us out of our, our complacency so we really grow. So that's what we've decided. He said, that's what I've decided. I said, well, that's kind of nice of you. He said, I said, but I cuss because I'm sort of a crude man. He says, oh. I said, and I'm sorry, I'll try my very best to clean my language up. He says, okay. So three weeks later, I'm, we're in this class, it was a night class. I'm super excited about what I'm talking about. And out one of these words come, and I realize it, I'm looking right down, and I go, and I'm so sorry I said that word. He says, no, nope, keep going, bro, you're on a roll. <laughs> we became best friends. 
And I pulled him aside one time and I said, thank you. Instead of gospel behind me, my back, you came and helped me correct something. Thank you. That took courage on to, to tell a teacher. And see, that's, what we're, that's where greatness lies. So that kid was great because he went and told someone or told a friend or told a whatever. So he says, go face to face. And uh, between one and one, don't bring anybody with you. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. He talked to me, that kid did. We became very, very close friends. And then he says, if he will not hear, then you take one or two more with you. Not just so you can bully them, but that so by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. I had a friend that came in one time, and he didn't like what I was doing in this program. So he didn't want to confront me, so he brought all the other division heads in, this organization I worked in. So they thought he could intimidate me. So he, I said, okay, what, what is it you don't like about this program that I do? And he laid it out. I said, okay. And then everybody listened, and they said, no, we think Bruce is right. So you don't take two or three witnesses with you so you can bully people. You take two or three other people with you because maybe you're wrong. Or maybe they're, you're 20% wrong, but they're 80% wrong. But at least they're, they're, you, know, you, you learn more. Because I was in a Christian organization where if you made a mistake, they called you into a tribunal and just intimidated you. And I thought, no, 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 that's not how you do it. One time I taught a Sunday school class in my home church, and I have told in the class that the church is um, programmed to build a larger parking lot. Um, I thought was wrong. They should let people park on the streets and walk a couple blocks, and they should take the money, go to the west side of Fresno, and build a health clinic. That's where the needs are. Let these middle-class white people walk a couple blocks. And I said that in a Sunday school class. It didn't go well. It got real quickly. The Sunday school class had 100 kids in it. So guess what they did? I was taken to lunch by a pastor. Was that the right thing? Yeah. And he sat down and one-to-one. I never forgot that. Uh, years later, I met that guy at Fuller. He was gone back for education. We sat in the same classroom together. And I thought, how oh, cool. Does that make sense? We can disagree with one another as Christians. But greatness comes with the courage to go face to face. And then if you bring in other people, it's so that truth is known. And then he says, if they don't listen to you, then tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then you kick them out. Let them become as a tax gatherer or a heathen. You say, well, sometimes you've got to just kick people out of these Calvary chapels. Okay, right? But is it over? Look at this. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The church has authority. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst. And I thought, what's that mean? How about this? If they sin against you, confront them. Stage two, 
maybe you should talk with some others because maybe there needs to be some clarification. Maybe you're both wrong or one is. Step three, the church should do the discipline. Step four, then you pull out the cannons. You pull out the really powerful guns, the guns of prayer, and you pound heaven until they come home. And I've seen this work. I remember taking a guy out for dinner, and I sat down with him, and I said, we appreciate the work you do as one of our division leaders, but the pornography's got to go. And he said, it's not going. I said, let me need to ask you to step down. Then guess what happened? He came back to the Lord, so we rehired him. Then he went back to that again. And so it got in the office that he's doing this and he's doing some other things that were really inappropriate. And so I said, okay, I'll go handle it. And then one of my peers says, no, you're not. He's my friend. I'll go take care of it. And he sat down with him and said, you know, you need to leave again. And, you know, this is why. And, and you know. And here's what happened. From the moment he was fired the second time, everyone in the office prayed every day for him. And he came home. Excellent man. He's done a lot of good in the world. Went in the business world. Did a lot of people a lot of good. And one day he called me and he says, what I appreciated most was you came to me one-on-one. And you listened to me. You asked me questions. And you gave me reasons. And he says, and you guys, none of you guys ever gave up on me. Because when two or three are gathered together, that's when there's power. That is greatness. That's a great church. What is the greatest church in the kingdom of heaven? That would, when it has to do discipline, does it humbly and courageously, first one-on-one, then maybe you have some other procedures. But then once a person does really stupid things, you never stop praying for them. And you'd be surprised some of the most effective leaders in the church have made mistakes and then come home. Okay, That's greatness. And you say, what's the third way? You said there's three ways. This is the one I won't uh, let you. I'll let you read it on your own. Um, you have to forgive people. You say, no, I don't forgive. Yeah, you do. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our as we judge them knowing how superior we are to them. Give us this our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we gossip about them. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. That is greatness. Um, This summer, um, I saw you guys in the audience there. I was in Santa Cruz, and Latimer found out, my best friend. He's in San Jose. He drove all the way over Sunday night, shared with us some things he's doing. Then Thursday, he drove back, and he says, I'm here to take you during your off hours because I was teaching at a camp. He says, I'm going to go introduce someone to you. He says, so we're driving over to where he's taking me. He says, 
We're getting there. He says, by the way, he says, um, you're going to notice this guy never stops smiling. I said, that sounds weird. He says, he doesn't. So when we got there, sure enough, I'm with the guy for about an hour and a quarter. He never stopped smiling. I kept looking at him. How do you do that? You know, I kept, he's, he's, he just seemed at peace. He seemed happy. So on the way over there, my friend, my friend Latimer, he goes, this guy was one time asked, why are you always so filled with joy? Guess what his answer was? He says, I have forgiven all my enemies. So when I met the guy, I, was, I watched him. And then I started to listen to him really carefully. And I thought, whoa, no wonder my friend Latimer goes and meets with this guy. This guy just drips with insight. This guy is just so effective. And, and fine. So we're walking out, and I turn to Latimer, and I says, has this guy got anything in print? He says, yeah, he does. I says, mail it to me, man. We're friends. You get that stuff over to me. I think that's greatness. And all of us can do that. But none of those are easy. All three of those steps are difficult. But all three of them are possible by every person in the room. Just in closing, um, if you've been really hurt, then it's harder to forgive or to confront. And if that's the case here this morning, um, I understand. Sometimes it's a long, dirty, hard battle to get to the point where you can forgive. If it takes you longer with certain situations, my hat is off to you. I've been in your shoes, and I know some wonderful Christians, very powerful Christians who have been in your shoes. But they've won. You can win. And I think it has something to do with how bad do you want it and how aggressive would you be to be free. And then when you get there, I think that's where your greatness is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done for us this morning with your, the singing and the beautiful singing that has been done. Thank you, Father, for our children who have been wonderfully and lovingly taught. And Father, bless them and bless us as we go and bring to our minds in memory what you said this morning through Matthew 18. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Stand.